It is a blessing and a pleasure to be here. Just for some context, for those of you that don't know me, my name is Mike Fernandez. I pastor the Calvary Chapel that is in uh, the Twin Cities. I've been coming here a long time, and Dwight has been a dear friend over the years to me and my wife, and really, I know he probably thinks of us more as friends, but I look up to him as a pastor and as a mentor as well. And uh, coming here is like coming home for me. There isn't any other fellowship, and probably a lot of Calvary pastors may say that if they come to visit. They love coming here, and I think they're lying to you. (laughs) They say that to everybody, but I'm only saying this to you guys because really, this really is home for us as far as Calvary chapels. My wife and I moved from Southern California back in 1987, the first year the Twins won the World Series. I am a Twins fan. We moved to Albuquerque. We were there for a year, and then we moved back to Minnesota, which is where I'm from. And in 1988 is when we started our fellowship in St. Paul. We were in St. Paul at the time. And uh, before starting the fellowship, and at that time, I think there was maybe about 120, 130 Calvary chapels on the Calvary Chapel list And I just felt so pressed on my heart that if we're going to start the work, start a Bible study, I just wanted to have a connection, but also to just a covering of a a wiser, more mature pastor. And I just wanted to be in connection with the nearest Calvary Chapel. And we were in St. Paul, and back then in 1988, the nearest Calvary Chapel is this one. There were no other Calvary Chapels. And so I came out here and introduced my wife and I, and we introduced ourselves to, to Pastor Dwight and... I was just 28 years old at the time. I was just a kid. It's funny, you don't, I'm 55 now, but you don't think of, you know, at the time you just go out and you're trusting the Lord, and that's the best way to go out, is in trusting the Lord, trusting his word. But the very first time that Pastor Dwight invited me to fill the pulpit here on a Sunday, I think he was either on a trip to India or to Israel, and so he invited me to come and fill the pulpit, and I'm thinking, he doesn't even know me. I'm, I'm a kid, I'm 29 years old, and he's inviting me to, to come and fill the pulpit, and yet he had such a trust in the Lord and trust in Calvary Chapel and those that have a heart to teach God's word. And, and again, to like a, a, a Paul who's working with a Timothy or a Titus, he has done that with me over the years. As uh, Paul read this morning, we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and actually that's where we're at in our own fellowship, and I just, the Lord put it on my heart to just simply teach where we're at on Sunday morning. So please turn in your Bibles to first, or I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And while you're turning there, I, I like the announcement that, that Paul had ma- made in reference to the church picnic. We have a picnic as well. And instead of arguing about kickball, we argue about the rules for wiffle ball. We have a wiffle ball game that's pretty competitive. So, But 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's, I'd like to open in a word of prayer, even though Lane did pray. Lord, we are just so grateful for this time to gra- together. So grateful, Lord, for uh, what you have done on the cross for us. Your blood that was shed, that redeems us, that washes us clean, and gives us boldness to come into your presence Thank you, Lord, for the time of worship. And now, Lord, as our hearts have been prepared, speak to us through your word. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So, as I mentioned, in our own fellowship, we are currently in 2 Corinthians. And if you know, and I'm sure you do, or many of you do, if you've read God's word, you know that the 
Epistles that Paul writes to, uh, to the church at Corinth, to Calvary Chapel Corinth, uh, his first and second epistles are very corrective in nature. And the reason being that they're corrective is because there's a, a lot of immaturity at the church at Corinth. And where we're picking up this morning in the 15 verses that we will look at, the Apostle Paul has basically been defending himself, which is why the, the chapter opens, the verse 1 says, and Paul writes, and actually, and I use Old King James, I'll try to take the edge off of the Old King James a little, but he, he writes and he says in verse 1, Would to God that you would bear with me a little in my folly, and indeed bear with me. The folly that the Apostle Paul is referring to spills over from the previous chapter, but also too from the epistles, because Paul is constantly having to defend himself to the church at Corinth. And I'm thinking if there's anybody in the scriptures that wouldn't have to defend himself, it would be the Apostle Paul because of his motives, because of his maturity, because of the laying down of his life, because of the testimony that he has encountering Jesus on the Damascus Road. And yet the church at Corinth, even though he had spent 18 months planting and establishing the church there. The church of Corinth is very carnal. And you can reference that by going back to chapters 1 and 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians. And Paul talks about the divisions that existed in the church at Corinth, the favorite teachers that they had, and, and just kind of the, the lack of maturity and the division that existed in the church and so when Paul opens up chapter 11 by saying, bear with my folly, basically he's referencing the fact that I'm constantly having to defend myself. But you know what? Put up with a little bit more because I'm going to continue to speak the truth to you. I'm going to continue to, 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 to speak God's word and also to demonstrate the relationship or the heart that he has with them as a pastor. And he says in verse 2, for I am jealous over you with a godly jealousy. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. Espousal. And actually when he says I'm jealous, he's, he's giving the, you know, the reason why he has such a zeal to speak the truth to the church that's there at Corinth. And that word in the old King James that's used for jealous is also the same word that's used for zeal or zealous. And they're very similar in that they describe an emotion that is burning or that there's a zealous effect that the Apostle Paul has for them. You know, when you think of jealousy, I think that there's two types of jealousy. There's the type of jealousy that really isn't warranted because there's an insecurity in a relationship. When my wife and I first started dating, and I was a young Marine of 20, I think 22 when we started dating, or 21, no, 22. And because of my lack of maturity, I, there were times that I'd feel jealous. You know, just insecure in our relationship. And, you know, there's this you know, thing that was going on. And I knew that I needed to mature. I knew that I had to trust, you know, because a relationship is built on trust over the years as a pastor. I've seen that as well as I've counseled. Sometimes 
married couples coming in, and and I re- recall a, a particular situation where, again, too, there was just this jealousy, but it wasn't warranted. There was faithfulness in the marriage, but, you know, one, you know, in the marriage was just distrusting of the other and constantly jealous. How come, how come they're not home on time? How come, you know, they're talking to somebody on the phone? How come, and there was just this, and again, too, maybe you've witnessed or seen that. It's unwarranted. There's just a, a lack of security in the relationship. But then there's the type of jealousy that is warranted. That, again, too, if someone were to begin to flirt with me or flirt with my wife, and again, too, you know, something would well up that would be righteous in its jealousy. And the Apostle Paul is talking about, again, too, this jealousy that he has over the church that's there at Corinth. And the thing I find interesting is, is how he pictures the church there. He says, I have espoused you to one husband. And to me, as I look at these 15 verses, I understand this because there's a, almost a template that you could lay over these verses that help give us the, an understanding or context from which the Apostle Paul is talking to the church at Corinth. And he says, I've espoused you. That might not be something that we're familiar with, Biblical times, and I'm sure, you know, it's been brought up in the teaching of God's word here. But in biblical times, many times marriages were arranged by parents. Maybe you as a parent, you know, thought about that. You, you meet somebody in the body of Christ and you think, oh, it would be great if our son or our daughter married someone else in the body of Christ whose family we really like. I know we thought about that. We have a daughter. She's now married. She's been married this month. It'll be four years. But at the time when she was still young and little, and you, you, you develop close relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ, and then you think, oh, it'd be so nice if our daughter married your son. Right? And that's something that was a common practice in biblical times, was then the arranging of those marriages. And then when the time for your children to get married would draw near, then what would happen is that there would actually be a ceremony. That in a sense, the the deal was sealed, the covenant was made. And even though it wasn't the actual marriage ceremony, it was this binding commitment. And from the time that you were then espoused to the time that you actually got married, then it was the same as if you were married, except for, again, to that intimacy that comes in marriage. And the Apostle Paul is drawing this picture that was something that they understood. A a marriage, a a commitment, a, a virgin bride that is committed to her husband. And basically what the Apostle Paul is saying is, I'm the dad. I'm the dad that has arranged this marriage for my daughter. And and again, too, you're familiar with these passages, but the Apostle Paul says the same thing to the church at Corinth back in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. He says to them, For though you have 10,000 instructors in Christ, yet have you not many fathers. For in Christ Jesus I have begotten you through the gospel. As the Apostle Paul would go from place to place and preach the gospel, and there would be a response, then he would take time to disciple and establish leadership and pour himself into that particular work of God. 
Again, too, even as I say that, I love that because the model that Calvary Chapel has taken over the years, I mean, the reason why Pastor Dwight planted the church here in Appleton, the reason why so many of the Calvaries have, have, have sprung up, not only throughout the country, but throughout the world, because God had put it on the hearts of men to go out and preach the gospel and to start with a Bible study, and that's what we did in our house. We started with a Bible study in our house. People started to come. And we saw the work of God grow. And you feel that investment. You feel as a, a parent, you know, this is my fellowship, but this is the fellowship that I, in Christ Jesus I have begotten through the gospel. And that's the way the Apostle Paul feels about the church of Corinth. But even though there is a lack of maturity, and again, to what parent hasn't had some type of an argument or struggle with their kids, their teenage kids, I mean, think about that. I mean, think of, and again, you might think, well, you know, I don't have any kids. Well, you may not have any kids, but you were a teenager. Think about what it was like when you were a teenager. And I was a pretty good teenager. I was a pretty good, I was a pretty compliant kid. I think maybe firstborns in the family probably are more compliant than others. And that was the case. But I remember at times just kind of button heads with my dad and just kind of that conflict that comes. And I think what the Apostle Paul is doing is, is in a sense, he has been as a father, as a father in Christ to the church in Corinth and the church being pictured then as his daughter, he's been kind of speaking some truth to this immature teenage daughter that he has called Calvary Chapel Corinth. And his desire, his zeal that he has, the, the jealousy that he has, is he wants him to understand that as a dad, I have committed you to a husband. And that husband is Christ Jesus. And again, I think back to when I was, you know, at that point when our daughter was just a teenager and sometimes the, the, the conflicts that we would have, even over dating. When my daughter was, I think when she started junior year in high school, she approached me, and up until that point, we wouldn't let her date. Just that was the rule in our family. You're not going to date. And, you know, she went to a public high school, and the other kids that she went to high school with thought, wow, what an archaic idea. What a, you know, what kind of a dad do you have? You know, they, they used to just think of us so, you know, as so, you know, narrow and old-fashioned. And I remember our daughter having then this discussion, wanting to know when she could date. And, and she, of course, she brings up her friends. All oh, my friends are dating. And then even then, she'd bring up some of the girls from, from church that were, she was friends with. And one of her dear friends was Medell. And she'd say, Medell's dad let her date when she was 17. And I just simply told Sarah, the rule for you is when I feel that you're mature enough to handle the relationship that's the point that your mom and I will let you begin to date. Well, what about 17? And I said, well, you know, and at the time going in as a junior in high school, I think she was still 16. So I said, well, if you want me to set some arbitrary date, like 17 or 18, I'll set the date. But I said, has it occurred to you that maybe I might think you're more mature or mature enough before you hit 17? Maybe while you're still 16, I'll think you're mature enough and I'll let you date that. And I said, so if you want me to set the date, I'll set it. She goes, no, 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 go ahead. You, you, you wait until I'm mature enough. So it's kind of funny. 
And, and, and the funny thing was is then too the the sometimes the high school boys that were interested in her. And another rule again too as a father trying to watch out for my teenage daughter because understanding that any relationship that she might have with someone could potentially end in marriage. And so, you know, there were guys that were interested. And the other rule then, when she came to that point where I felt that she was mature enough, and to be honest with you, it was just a few months later. It was before she was 17. You know, in high school, there's, you know, proms and there's homecomings and dances and things like that. And so we we began to just simply trust her and kind of let the reins, you know, loosen up a little and just trust that all the things that we had done as parents was that we had trained her and equipped her in the way that she should go. And when she's now growing old, she's not going to depart. But another rule was in order for any guy to actually go out on a date with my daughter, they had to come and meet us first. I don't think that's an unreasonable rule as a parent. I mean, who wouldn't want to meet a young man who potentially might be her husband. And again, too, that was something that Sarah, you know, back then she was just like, oh, dad, come on. I mean, nobody's going to want to do that. And she'd tell me, you know, that there were guys that, that wanted to ask her out, but at the same time, they knew the rule. They knew the rule that they had to meet us. And, and, she, and she said, well, they're not going to want to do that. And then I said, well, they must not care very much about you then if they're not willing to meet your parents first, knowing that that's the rule. I'm, I'm grateful because, again, to our daughter matured, our daughter met a godly young man. Our daughter has been happily married and walking with the Lord and serving the Lord for the last couple of years in our fellowship. She, like I said, she will be married four years in a few more weeks, about two weeks. But both her and her husband, and her husband's actually filling the pulpit for me this morning back in our fellowship. Our daughter serves on the worship team. But as a parent, I understand what the Apostle Paul is talking about here when you put it in that context that the Apostle Paul cares for them, that he has espoused the church, in a sense, to Christ. And now these are the fears that as a a father he has for them. In verse 3, he says, But I fear lest by any means as the serpent beguiled Eve through his subtlety, so your minds should be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For he that cometh and preaches another Jesus whom you have not preached, or, or whom we have not preached, or if you receive another spirit which you have not received, or another gospel which you have not accepted, you might well bear with him. The Apostle Paul is expressing then this you know, concern that he has, and he gives the example, and again too, these are, are, are women examples, but they're applicable to us as well. He gives the example of Eve being beguiled by the serpent through subtlety, that the the, the, the serpent just simply attacked the character of God, basically saying, has God really said, challenging the word of God? And again, too, you, know, you can go back to the book of Genesis and see the temptation and, and pointing out how lovely the tree was and that the, the fruit was good and that it was something that would make one wiser, knowledgeable. And God knows in the day that you eat it, you're going to become just like God or God's. And you'll know the difference between good and evil. I mean, he's, 
you know, there's this enticement that's going on with this young girl. And again, too, he's picturing then the church at Corinth as this young girl who lacks a maturity, but again, too, has already been laid, a foundation has been laid in Christ Jesus at the church so they should know better. You know, even as I mentioned, <laughs> my daughter in coming to that point where, you know, or getting to that point when she was going to start to date, it made me think of a, a particular time where a group was going to go out. My daughter would go out sometimes uh, with groups of friends to go see a movie or to go grab a bite to eat. And uh, they were coming to pick her up, and she said to me, well, Dad, I'm going to go out with you. And she named a couple of kids she was going to go out with. And I said, well, you know, I haven't met some of those kids. Could you ask them to come in and when they come to pick you up? And again, too, she just did not like that at the time. But I said, well, just call me. I was downstairs in my man cave at the time, probably working on my Sunday message. But when I heard the door upstairs open, and then my daughter called down the stairwell, Dad, you know, they're here. And it was a group of them, but I knew everybody else, so just the two young boys that were in high school with her. And I think it was probably when she was a sophomore. They came in, and I came walking up the stairs with a bat. Now, it was a plastic wiffle ball bat. And it was, you know, black plastic. But, you know, you could tell it was plastic because I was kind of tapping it on my hand, kind of like, oh, are these the young men that have come to call, Sarah? And she's like rolling her eyes, Dad! And the funny thing is, is you know, I, the, the, I was just, you know, it was either that or cleaning a gun when I came upstairs, but we don't have any guns, so. Um, but, you know, it was funny because it really shook those guys. And that wasn't my intent. My intent, if you know me, is I was just simply trying to be playful with them, but apparently... Sarah told me that they were really shaken up by me coming up with a bat and being as protective as I was as a father. And the Apostle Paul is protective of the church here as well. And I find, too, that the thing that he mentions there in verse 3 is that there's a simplicity. His concern is that their minds would be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. So many times what the cults do is they make things complicated and they make people feel like, you know, in order to get to heaven or in order to, uh, to have a relationship with God, you have to jump through all these hoops or you have to do all these different things or you have to study with us because there's a, an understanding that our group has that nobody else throughout human history has ever had regarding God's word. And the Apostle Paul just brings it down to something very, very simple. He reminds them of the simplicity that is in Christ. And again, too, since I'm talking about fathers and daughters and being protective and falling in love, in a sense, or being espoused, you know, I think when it comes to love, love is such a simple thing. I think sometimes we make things so complicated. You know, even as you saw the little video of my wife and I, and at the time we'd, we'd been married about six years back then, I, we've been married now 32 years, but I think about the fact how that the Lord brought the two of us together and we knew that it was God's will. And it wasn't complicated. This is the woman that God has chosen for me. I'm the man that God had chosen for her. And even though sometimes relationships can be difficult, and as the book of Proverbs says, as iron sharpens iron, so man, the countenance of his friends, and there sometimes maturing that needs to take place, and conflicts, and, and communication, all those things are normal in a relationship. 
the relationship itself was very simple. We knew that God had chosen us for each other. We knew that there was love that God had put in our hearts for each other. And, and at times, even before we got married, we were having some of these conflicts. And my wife's a little bit older than I am and wiser and more mature. And so at the time, uh, you know, we would have these conflicts and arguments. And, and we're sitting in, in, in the car at one time, parked in front of her house. And as we have one of these arguments, and, and, and at the end of it, my wife, being very dramatic, she takes off the engagement ring and she takes it off and, and, and she says, here, take it back. And, 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 you know, and I just looked at her and I, I, I looked at the ring and, and then I just started to laugh because I thought, you know what God has called us to. And I actually even think I said to her, you know I'm very immature and I need to grow up some. But the relationship itself was simple. We knew what God had called us to. The thing is, a relationship with God is simple as well. There is a simplicity in Christ Jesus. And there is a, many times I think, you know, it's, it's a reasonable thing as well, just as the scriptures say. But he brings up these thing, three things that, you know, he's worried that if somebody comes and preaches another Jesus, and you might think, well, what are you talking about, preaching another Jesus? I mean, you know, who preaches another Jesus? Well, I'll define it this way. When you preach another Jesus other than the Jesus, the Son of God that has been revealed in God's inspired word, then you're preaching another Jesus. A lot of the churches or cults are preaching another Jesus. The Mormons preach a Jesus that is actually the half-brother of Lucifer. That's not in God's word. That is not the Jesus of the Bible. Other churches, again, too, they've added certain things to who Jesus is or what he did. And again, too, one of the problems during the, you know, the, the, the early church that they had was Gnosticism a mystical view of who Jesus was. And like, you know, again, too, like a vampire who, you know, if he were to walk in front of a mirror, he doesn't see his reflection. You know, they were, the Gnostics would, would, would take certain things, mystical things, and they would, you know, say that's, again, to Jesus, if he walked on the sand and there'd be, you know, no footprints there, or if he, you know, looked at his reflection in the water, that that that, that wouldn't be there as well. And again, too, that's not the Jesus that God's word speaks to us of. How many times people actually don't, you know, take the admonition or the commendation that the Apostle Paul gives to the church in Berea and search the scripture to see whether or not the things that are being told them are so. He also mentions another spirit. And again, too, another spirit is a, another way or another heart or another, again, too, thing that is motivating the life of a person. Before Jesus went to the cross and as he is on his way to Jerusalem in Luke chapter 9, he sends James and John to this little Samaritan town or village. And, and, and you know that the Jews normally didn't have any dealings with the Samaritans. You know, you see that as Jesus interacts with the woman in the well at the well. But also, too, here in Luke chapter 9, he sends the disciples into the Samaritan village to just find a place that they could spend the night. And, and at first, the Samaritans who are familiar with Jesus' public ministry and the miracles and the preaching of the gospel are really excited over the fact that they think that Jesus is coming to stay with them. But the problem is they're thinking, when they find out 
that the, Jesus and his disciples only are planning on spending one night there, they kind of resent that. And they basically kind of draw a line. If he's not going to spend more time here than you know, just one night, you can't stay here. And James and John, when they come back to report to Jesus the response of this Samaritan village, they say to Jesus in verse 54, Lord, will you that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elijah did? We can't spend the night here. God, you want us to wipe them all out by calling fire down from heaven? (laughs) And he turned to them and rebuked them and said, you know not what manner of spirit you are. I mean, their spirit or the response that they were having wasn't a spiritual response that was guided by, again, to a motivation that people's hearts would be softened and saved, but their It was a fleshly spirit that they were reacting in the flesh. It's like, oh, you won't let us stay here? I'll show you. We're going to call down fire from heaven. When we were starting the Bible study in our house, there was a guy that was coming to our Bible study. And it was interesting to me because he was very elusive about any background that he had had in going to the church or any church. He, he called us up the, 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 the day we were starting our first Bible study in our house, and he, he said, well, I like to study the Bible. Can I come? I said, well, sure. But then when he came, you know, he, I'd ask him, so, you know, where have you been to church? And, and he, he, he wouldn't answer the question with an honest answer. He'd say, oh, you know, different places. And I'd say, what, Catholic church, Baptist church, Methodist church, Pentecostal church? And then he would say, in different places. You know, he would just say things like that. He just wouldn't answer. And so what ends up happening is, is over the course of time, he ends up, you know, asking me certain questions as well. And I'd always give him an answer as honestly or from the scripture as best I could. And he'd ask me different things. Well, Mike, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about that? And again, too, this is in the late 80s. But, he, you know, he, he was asking the question about dancing. Mike, what do you think about dancing? And I said to him, well, what do you define what kind of dancing you're talking about? Ballroom? Waltzes? What? And I knew what he meant, at least I thought he did. But, you know, as an expression of worship and praise to God, he felt like, you know, when we were worshiping in our house with just a handful of people, he felt like he wanted to dance. And and I said, well, you know, Paul says in, I believe in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, to let everything be done decently and in order. And I said, you know, I know that... If you want to dance as an expression to God, that's probably not going to happen here. But I said, and I meant this in all sincerity, not that I was trying to get rid of him, but I said, if you're really wanting to do that, I'll help you find a church that you could do that at. And, and, and he says, no, no, that's okay. And then a couple months go by, and he calls me up again, and he, again, too, with the same line of question about dancing. And the thing that he said to me was, he says, you know, when the Spirit comes upon me, I feel like I need to dance. And on top of that, the Spirit wants me to dance at your house. Because I had said to him again, you could dance someplace else if you want. And he goes, no, I feel that the Spirit wants me to dance at your house. And then he says, and again, to keep in mind, my wife's the one that's leading worship. There's just a couple people. And I, I said, you know, I just don't think it'd be appropriate to really draw attention to you at a home Bible study. If you're dancing... And the rest of us are worshiping. But he says to me, if somebody were to try to stop me, they could get hurt. 
And then I basically said to him what Jesus said to John and James, the sons of thunder. You know, you know not what spirit you are of. I said, that's not the spirit of God that's telling you to do that. I said, you, you're telling me if my wife's playing the guitar and she were to say, hey, Jeff, please don't dance. It's really a distraction. You might punch her. And he said, I don't know what would happen when the spirit comes on me. And here's the thing. The apostle Paul, I believe, is talking about the same thing when he says another spirit. I mean, the things that people will attribute to the Spirit to be able to justify their fleshly or carnal actions, I believe that's one of the, at least, possibilities that the Apostle Paul is talking about when you talk about another Spirit, or another way that the Spirit works other than what the Scripture defines, the Holy Spirit working in the life of believers. And again, too, back in his first epistle to them, he gives them point by point of the working and the operation and the spiritual gifts that are mentioned there. In 1 Corinthians, you're familiar with in chapter 12, 13, and 14 as well. But the third thing that he mentions is another gospel. You know, that somebody would come and preach another gospel, you know, they're, they're either come and give you another Jesus, give you another spirit, or they preach another gospel, which is why in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, The Apostle Paul makes it very simple and clear what the gospel is when he reminds them of what the gospel is. He says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which is preached unto you, which also you have received and wherein you stand, but which also you are saved, if you keep it in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. And he's going to now talk about the, the basic three points of the gospel. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also have received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. First element of the gospel, so simple. That Jesus died for your sins. He died for my sins. Which demonstrates that we're sinners. That there was a need for Jesus to die for our sins because If we could get to heaven any other way by being good or righteous, then God the Father wouldn't have sent the Son to die such a horrific death on the cross to pay the price for my sins. He goes on to say, and that he was buried. And again, uh, one of the things that Gnosticism taught was that basically Jesus really didn't, you know, he wasn't really flesh and blood. Because how could a God that is good and holy and pure come and take the form of a corrupted nature and man in his creation that's been corrupted by sin? How could God in his goodness become a man that is corrupted as well? And yet the fact that he was buried demonstrates that he he, he lived a physical life and he died and that there's no... Again, again, too, there are some that will try to say, well, he really didn't die, or after suffering all these things, and after he'd been beaten, and his beard plucked out, and you read Isaiah 53, and, and you see the things that he suffered, and then be, nails being driven through his hands, and then through his feet as well, and then after he, he dies, a, a soldier putting a, a sword or a lance in his side and and basically the blood and water coming out that demonstrated that he had indeed died. You know, there were those who say, well, you know, he really didn't die a physical death. That he was just simply, you know, went into this coma or his body was recovering and they laid him in this cool, damp grave. And because of that, then he was revived after three days. He died. 
And, all, and again, too, the, the simplicity and all the truth that comes from that. But it says that on the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And even when Paul reminds them of the gospel, he demonstrates that all these things were prophesied in advance. And so there is a, a simplicity to the gospel. And I find that most people, again, too, they know these things whether the non-believer or the believer would acknowledge the simplicity and the truths that are found in God's word, people know these things. I knew these things before I came to Christ. But it's a matter of, am I going to believe these things? Am I going to surrender my life to Jesus because of what he has done to me? Am I going to surrender to the work of God's Holy Spirit in leading and guiding me in the decisions that I make? Am I going to, again, to realize that what the gospel has done for me in saving me, God wants me to be used of him to proclaim the gospel as well. So the Apostle Paul reminds them of these things that they had known. And I think so many times the problem isn't, again, to a knowledge of these things. It's a continuing in these things. You know, continuing to walk with God, continuing, uh, again, to, to just simply stick with the truths of God's word instead of chasing something that's different or longing for something from the past. Just like the children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years after God had delivered them from Egypt, and yet they kept looking back to Egypt, and instead of accepting the, the deliverance of God from Egypt, which is a picture of God's deliverance, you know, for us from our sins. And eating the manna that God had provided for them every day, and again, too, I love the, again, to the parallel, that the manna is the word of God. And, and again, too, people just simply, oh, you know, we're tired of the manna, we're tired of word, God's word, we want something more, better, or spicier, exciting, or all these different things, and people get into the flesh. They get into all these different things. And, and so the Apostle Paul then, and one of, one of the things too that, that comes to mind for me of just reminding them of the simplicity is one of the things that Pastor Chuck, an illustration that he once gave years ago about a bank teller. That banks would sometimes train their tellers by, again, to being able to spot the difference between something that was the genuine article or the authentic dollar bill or $20 bill or $100 bill, and the counterfeit. And Pastor Chuck would say that the way that the banks would train the teller then is that they would have a new teller working in the vault, handling just the original money at first. So all that new teller knew was handling authentic, the genuine article. It's printed on a certain type of paper. It has certain types of inks that are used. And again, too, it's been a problem in our society, counterfeit money. And again, too, that's why even our Treasury Department has installed all these different security features on your on your money, because you can see the, the different inks, and you can see the different things woven into them. And you hold it up to the light, and you see the little hologram of the president that's in there as well, or, or those different things. But he'd say, so that then when the teller was handling something, then actually no longer was working there then would work as a real teller and, and somehow somebody would try to slip them a counterfeit bill and again not you know now with technology they just put them in those machines they spit things out and say, oh, this is a fake bill but back then then the teller could handle it and know 
because the tellers handled the genuine or the authentic article, that something was wrong, that something was different. And again, too, for a protection for us from being, you know, seduced or being enticed away from the simplicity of the gospel is staying with the authentic and the genuine article, God's word. And in verse 5, he says, I suppose I, old King James, I was not a, a, a wit. Or in one of the newer translations, he says, I, I think that I am, I do not think that I am in, in the least inferior to the very chief apostles. And in verse 6, he says, for though I be rude in speech or unskilled, you know, he, he wasn't as articulate as maybe they thought that, that, that he should be. And yet he says, yet not in knowledge. And he says, but we have been thoroughly made manifest among you in all things. The evidence for the Apostle Paul was they'd seen his life. They'd seen the love that he has as a father to the church there at Corinth. And he says in verse 7, and one of the things too that we know about the Apostle Paul, at least how he dealt specifically with the church at Corinth, and he talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, is that when he was there, instead of him being supported by the ministry, he chose to, to work outside the ministry and to be a tent maker. And again, too, he didn't want anybody to be able to accuse him that he was in the ministry just for the money. And he says in verse 7, Have I committed an offense in abasing myself that you might be exalted because I have preached to you the gospel of God freely? And when, when the Apostle Paul says this in verse 8, he says, I, I robbed other churches. It's not like he's, he's speaking sarcastically. He's not saying, yeah, I waited till no one was around, went into the offering box, or snuck in, broke windows, did things like that. He's not talking about that because he says, I robbed other churches taking wage, wages of them to do your service. And when I was present with you and wanted, I was chargeable to no man for that which was lacking to me, the brethren which came from Macedonia supplied. And in all things have I kept myself from being burdensome unto you, and so will I keep myself. As the truth of Christ is in me, no man shall stop me of this boasting in the regions of Achaia. He, you know, that is the, the state in which Corinth was in, was Achaia. And he's basically saying, I did all these things for a reason. And since I started off with a father who's trying to watch out for his teenage daughter who's espoused to be married. Again, too, sometimes parents have to resort to that. To just simply remind their kids of all the sacrifices that I've made because I love you. Paul is saying that's the reason why, and I'm going to boast in that. As a parent, in a sense, can boast or brag of the things that they have done for their kids, the Apostle Paul is basically saying, I've done all these things for you and nobody's going to rob me of this boasting. And he asked the question in verse 11, why? Why did I do this? Wherefore? Because I love you not? And actually, when Paul read that in the announcements or was reading the passage, and it almost sounded like he was making a statement. Why am I doing all these things? Because I don't love you. No, he's not. it's a question. Because I love you not? And he says, God knows. 
God knows that I love you. And in verse 12, he says, But what I do, that I do, that I may cut off occasion from them which desire occasion, that wherein they glory, they may be found even as we. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. Why do I do this? Is it because I, I don't love you? No, he says, because I do love you. But he's, what he's wanting to do is he's, again, to trying to keep his, his daughter from being deceived by other callers that might come around and try to seduce her away. And he's basically saying, the things that I'm doing, I'm doing to be able to show you the difference between me and Jesus Christ and the gospel and the Holy Spirit, the, the genuine article, and the false. The ones that are simply coming and they're trying to seduce or to lie or deceive you. It reminds me of what Jesus said in John chapter 10 about being the good shepherd, that he's the good shepherd. And he said in verse 7, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep, and all that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and he shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd whose own the sheep or not sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is a hireling And cares not for the sheep. Basically what the Apostle Paul is saying the same thing. The same way that Jesus Christ has laid his life down for the sheep. He demonstrates the love and the care that he has as a shepherd, as a pastor. As a father. What father wouldn't lay down his life for his daughter? In a sense, what he is saying is he's wanting to to show the difference between the life that he has lived. Why? Verse 11 Because what I do, I want to cut off the occasion of them that desire an occasion who are going to boast or glory that they may be found even as we. In a sense, he's basically saying, you want to prove that you're the genuine article, an apostle or a pastor that really has living a sacrificial life and isn't in it for just the money or just trying to exercise authority over people or influencing them. He says, such are false apostles, the deceitful workers transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And he says, no marvel, for Satan is transformed into an angel of light. I mean, many times, and again, to giving Eve as, you know, an illustration earlier in the, in the passage, again, too, you know, Eve wasn't afraid of the serpent at that time. And many times, too, when Satan comes, he doesn't come, you know, the way we think. And Or even in the movies, when, when someone's portrayed as being evil, they're always wearing dark clothes. The good guy wears the white suit, and the bad guy wears the, the dark suit with the black hat or whatever. I mean, even then, the movies, 
they're not like that anymore, but they used to be. It used to be really clear who the good guy was and the bad guy was by the way they dressed. But what the Apostle Paul is saying is that Satan doesn't come that way. That's why people are deceived. He comes and he looks good externally. You know, he poses himself as an angel of light. But the other thing that he says is those that are also to trying to draw away the flock of God do the same thing. They, they transform themselves as ministers of righteousness. And I think there's a lack of discernment in the church today. There's a lack of maturity. There's a lack of, of understanding. There's a lack of growth. And I just simply close with one other passage. And it's found at the end of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 5. When the writer of Hebrews is concerned about, again, to their lack of maturity as he writes this epistle, he says in verse 12, when for the time you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. And basically what the the writer of Hebrews is saying is, is, For the amount of time that the church had been in Christ that he is addressing this epistle to, he expected them to be more mature. But, you know, like a a baby who can only, is still on the bottle or is nursing and, and can only have milk, he basically says to the church, he says, you're lacking maturity. You should be eating solid foods by now. You should be eating meat. But he says, you have need, again, you know, to go back to the milk. And he says in verse 13, everyone that uses milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. That was the same problem the church at Corinth had. They, they lacked maturity. And he says in verse 14, but strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The discernment that the Apostle Paul is wanting his daughter, the church at Corinth, to understand is that there's a simplicity to the truths of God's word. And if you continue in them and not depart from them, then as you use God's word, you will mature to be able to discern the true from the false. Let's close in a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for just the teaching of your word that is constantly taking place from this pulpit and from this fellowship. I pray, God, that you'd continue to bless the work that's being done here, continue to bless the flock, stir up a hunger, Lord, in our hearts for more of your word, for more of the working of your Holy Spirit, and, Lord, that we would preach the gospel. And it's in your mighty name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.